can find your way for a final time, at least in this particular series, to John 14. John chapter 14, let's pray. Our God and King, faithful are You in every possible way. So now we ask that You would faithfully, through Your Spirit, open the Word to point us to Your Son. We would grow in our knowledge of Him and grow in our likeness to Him. That we would be conformed and shaped by the truths You reveal to us, beginning in our mind but working down into our hearts convicting us of sin, bringing us to repentance, opening truth to us that nourishes our souls and shapes them and points them to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. John 14, two passages we've seen before, but let me read them as the foundation for this morning. John 14, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, "...if you love Me, you will keep My commandments." And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And now at verse 25, Jesus continues and says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I wanted to back up this morning and cover one final thing in John 14 before we go on to chapter 15 in a couple of weeks. I think in three weeks is when we'll be back in John. Because you'll notice that Jesus has introduced us here to the Holy Spirit for really the first time. As you're reading through John, he's mentioned earlier, but not from the lips of Jesus. And here he has told us that the Holy Spirit will come to us from the Father at Christ's request in order to be with us forever. And he is, Jesus says, another helper, meaning another just like me. Another to come and stand in my place and continue my work of providing comfort and help and and strength and guidance to you. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the salvation won for us by Christ and applies it, works it into our lives. And He will teach you, Jesus says, verse 26, He will teach you everything you need to know to know and walk with Me. And so here's the question that we want to pick up this morning. So what is the nature of this one called the Holy Spirit? And how does He help us? How are we to understand His his ministry to us? Many today think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of an energy force, a, a thing sent from God to help us and empower us in some way. You know, a power that we then take hold of and use. But what I want to focus on this morning is the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a person? What is this gift we receive when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our lives? Is He in fact a person? Indeed, the very person of God present with us. Who is this? 
who comes and, and draws near to lead us in a life of growing holiness and joy and humility and faithfulness. And how does He draw us into a deeper, more satisfying relationship with Christ the Son and the Father? And so let's, let's look at this this morning. Let's begin with that very basic question, who is the Holy Spirit? And notice I said who. I did not say what is the Holy Spirit. Why not? Well, because the Holy Spirit is not a what. In the sense that He is not a thing. He is not an it. The Holy Spirit is indeed a person. There I've answered the question, we can go home. Uh, No, He is the third person of the Holy Trinity, meaning that He is God along with the Father and along with the Son. He is as much God and as much a person as the Father is a person, as the Son is a person. And we need to get that very, very firmly fixed in our minds before we go on to anything else about Him in the remaining of John. The Holy Spirit is a person. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that as you relate to the Holy Spirit, you are relating to a someone. You are encountering a living somebody. A someone who has a personality and a mind. Someone who possesses a will and emotions. Someone who, as God, loves His people very much and has a desire and a plan for His good in our lives. And again, He is a person, every bit as much as the Lord Jesus Christ is a person, and we really do need to think of Him in that way. Okay, so why am I emphasizing this like this? Because there are many today who deny the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Like many of the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door, and they, along with others, will begin to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not a person in any real sense, that He is instead a, an impersonal force, much like electricity, that He is uh, a force that God uses to accomplish His will on earth. And, you know, maybe even something kind of like the Star Wars force. But it's not just the cults. Uh, Christian liberalism, at least in its classical form, has long treated the Holy Spirit as an impersonal influence. Uh, more of a feeling or a sense that God is near, much as we might talk about the spirit of Christmas or a patriotic spirit. And even some evangelicals will depersonalize the Holy Spirit. Uh, They'll speak of Him as an it and act as if He was no more a person than the wind blowing through your window on a sunny day or the electricity running through the wiring in your house. Now, where does that kind of thing come from? Well, part of the blame, at least in our own language, is that this very word, spirit, uh, can lead some into confusion. You hear the word father instantly. You know what a father is. You, you think in very personal terms. You can relate to a father as a person because that is your experience. Same is true of a son. You have experienced a son as a, as a person with whom you interact. But, but spirit, well, that's an entirely different thing in our experience. And then you dig down into the language itself and, 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 and you find, and this doesn't seem to, to help you out of that in your mind, you find that the spirit in the original language actually can also mean breath 
or wind. Pneuma in Greek is used for spirit. It's used for wind. Same thing with ruach in Hebrew. Now you're really confused. I mean, you know what wind is? It's a force. It's not a person at all. You don't, you don't talk with the wind. You don't interact with the wind. You don't have a, a personal relationship with the wind. If you do, they come and drag you away and put you in a little room somewhere so you won't hurt yourself. And, and so there's this confusion in the minds of many over what it means when the Bible calls Him the Spirit. So what does the Bible mean when it refers to the Holy Spirit and uses that term Spirit? Well, first of all, The term spirit is used to emphasize the fact that his very nature indeed is spiritual and not physical. You can't see him with your eye. He's not made of flesh and bone. He doesn't have fingers and toes and elbows. You you can't touch him. Oh, but there are times and ways that you can feel his presence, aren't there? And you're aware that He draws near. But it's a different kind of thing. And so in that, He is kind of like the wind. Back to our confusion. And Jesus even uses that imagery in John 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wills, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so the Spirit in some ways is like the wind. He's powerful. He's unseen. He's at work. Oh, but He's not the wind. He is not an impersonal force. He is the person of God working very forcefully in our lives. Second, He is called the Spirit to remind us that He is not limited physically. Uh, He he is always and everywhere present, working, moving, influencing, bringing about God's will in the world and yes, in our own lives. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? He is spirit. He's also called the Holy Spirit, lest we miss that. The Holy Spirit, John 14.25, Romans 1.4, goes on to call Him the Spirit of holiness. His very nature is holy, pure, set apart from sin. And He comes into our lives to take us out of sin and sin out of us as He sets us apart to God and causes us to grow in holiness. And how does He do that? Well, lest we forget, He does it first of all by the miracle of regeneration. John 3 talks about the necessity that you must be born again. You must be born from above. The Spirit must come to your dead soul through the hearing of the Gospel and awaken you to life. Just as Ephesians says, we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, through the Spirit, made us alive together in Christ. And so there's the awakening of the new birth, conversion, and then He continues that work through the ongoing sanctification that He brings into our lives, molding us, shaping us more and more in the image of Jesus. Titus 3.5 brings these together and says that He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit works to apply the Gospel into the lives of those God has saved through Christ. And there's a whole other sermon we could have just on that alone. Probably five or six. But what does this have to do with Him being a person? I mean, surely God could do those kinds of things with a force, with an energy. So so what proof is there that the Holy Spirit is indeed a, a somebody, a someone for us to know and relate to? 
with our remaining time, let's think about what the Bible teaches us about the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you seven truths that demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, a someone to relate to. First of all, I find in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in very personal, person-type terms. If you look over to John 16, should be the next page in your Bible. And let me read beginning in verse 6. We're still in the farewell discourse. Jesus is preparing His disciples to continue on in faith after He departs from them. And so we look at verse 6. Jesus says, But because I've said these things to you, letting you know that I'm leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Skip on down to verse 13. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and He will declare it to you. Now, a lot there, we'll get to it eventually, but not to get too technical, there's something I simply want you to see here. Unlike English, Greek words all have grammatical gender. That means every noun in Greek is masculine, feminine, or neuter. For example, the Greek word hand, chire, is feminine. The Greek word foot, uh, podos, is masculine. Now, that doesn't mean that your foot is actually a boy or your hand is actually a girl. It's just the way the grammar works. But when you refer to your foot or hand, if I talk about my hand, I will call it an, I will not call it an it, I will call it a her in Greek. And when I refer to my foot, I will call it a he. That's just the way the language works. And those of you who know Spanish, French, German, you realize they kind of do the same thing. Well, the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is neutral in gender. What that means, when you refer to the spirit in a sentence using a pronoun, you ought to use the pronoun it. And there are places in the New Testament where, as you're reading along the Greek, the author does use the pronoun it because he is following the rules of grammar. But here... In John's Gospel, John doesn't do that in this place. As he's recording these words of Jesus, and he comes to this pronoun for the Holy Spirit in verse 13 and the rest of it, he ought to use the word it, because that would be grammatically correct. He ought to say, it will guide you, it will not speak on its own, it will glorify me, etc. But he can't bring himself to do it. And so in blatant violation of the rules of grammar, he says instead, he will guide you. And he uses an intense form of he. He will not speak on his own. He will glorify. Now, why does he do that? Why does he break the rules of grammar? Well, because here he is emphasizing this fact. The Spirit is not a mere it. The Spirit is, in fact, a person, a he. Indeed, the person of God. Second, 
Another clear indication of the personhood of the Holy Spirit comes in the way that He is consistently linked with the Father and the Son in the New Testament. For example, the Great Commission uh, that we know so well, Matthew 28:19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice how the Holy Spirit is linked here together with the Father and the Son is one God. Baptizing them in the name, singular, one name, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not the names, plural, but the name, because there's one name. Because there's only one God, there's only one name, and yes, this God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another clear reference to the Trinity, we've seen these before, one God who exists eternally as three persons. But here's my point here. If these three are one God with one name, is it possible that the Father would be a person, the Son would be a person, and yet the Holy Spirit, who shares their name, not be a person? And if for somehow that one is not clear enough for you, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, a great benediction of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be with you all. Now, now clearly here we are meant to understand the Holy Spirit is a person in line with the Father and the Son. He is a someone with whom we can have fellowship just as we have fellowship with God, with the Son, with the Father in love and with the Son in grace. Third, the Holy Spirit interacts with people in the New Testament. He re- interacts with us as believers in a very personal way. I look over to Acts 15.28, and by the way, I've written all these in the bulletin if you want to look them up yourself later. But Acts 15.28, here the leaders of the early church have worked together to come to a decision about the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Must Gentiles become uh, Jewish before they can be saved, or can they simply believe in the gospel of Christ and come in that way to faith? Well, they're going to conclude very clearly it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But look how they place this when they write a letter. Uh, Acts 15.28, they write a letter to the other churches and they say this, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Notice how they put this. They say, we've worked through this issue together and we've come to a conclusion... And now it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do such and such, just to preach the gospel. Now, but do you see the implication? They're treating the Holy Spirit as a person here, someone who is there as they're deliberating, someone who is, who is interacting with them, someone who is part of the discussion. You see, you don't say, it seemed good to me and this chair you know, that I do such and such. That's a very personal thing. Or Acts 13, 2-4. It says, While they, the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit sent. Now you don't have a conversation with a light bulb who then sends you out into the yard. Again, if you do, there are issues. Here's a fourth indication of the person who are the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit 
demonstrates the attributes or qualities of a person. For example, the Holy Spirit possesses knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2.11 No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit knows the thoughts of God. Now it takes a person to know something. A computer can hold data, but a computer doesn't know anything. Only a person can know something. Why? Because to know something in this sense requires that you have a mind. Well, does the Spirit have a mind? Well, you bet. Romans 8.27 speaks of the mind of the Spirit. Not only that, but, but, but like any person, the Holy Spirit demonstrates a will and emotions. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, as Paul is describing the gifts which are given within the church by the Holy Spirit, he says, 1 Corinthians 12.11, All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions, who passes them out individually as He wills. So the Holy Spirit exercises His will in this matter of giving particular gifts. You ever ask the question, why do I have this particular gift and I don't have that gift over there? Here's the reason, because the Holy Spirit chose to give that gift and to use that gift in your life for the good of the church. He exercises His will, and oh, it is a sovereign will, by the way. He exercises His will to determine what gift you will have and how you will serve His people within the body. And it's simply a false teaching to claim that we get to choose the gift we want, like a cafeteria, I'll have this one but not that one. No, the Holy Spirit is the one who chooses. He's the one that conveys the gift. He's the one that chooses how it is you will serve Christ. Then notice, He also has emotions. The Holy Spirit shows the emotions of a person. Uh, Romans 15 verse 30 speaks of the love of the Spirit. Uh, Just as in Galatians 5.21, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Meaning this is what He brings into our lives. This is how He manifests His presence. As He enters our hearts, He brings with Him His own love. Uh, Romans 5, verse 5 says that He fills us with the love of God. Now, where does that love the Holy Spirit brings to us come from? Oh, it's His love. Yes, it's also Christ's love, but the Holy Spirit in the Trinity has, shares all that is the Father's, all that is the Son. And so as He fills us with His presence, He fills us with His love and enables us to love God and love one another because His love running through us is doing the work. Not only that, Ephesians 4.30 speaks of another emotion. It says, we read earlier, Warren read that he, the Spirit, can be grieved. Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Think of that. He can be bothered. He can be troubled. He can be saddened and pained by what he sees in our lives, the things that we do that are contrary to His holy will. And just think of that one for a moment. Here is, Christian, a great help to your sanctification to know that you are indwelt by this dear Holy One. We've seen in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father at the request of the Son to be present within us as believers. What that means is, once you come to Christ, where you go, He goes. 
What you say, He hears. What you think, He knows. He is present in you and with you as you do all these things and He can be grieved by what He sees and hears and witnesses in your life. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is specifically warning in this passage about sexual immorality. So that in verse 18, just before he says the Spirit can be grieved, he warns us and says, flee sexual immorality. Have nothing to do with it as a Christian. Why? Well, because God's Holy Spirit is present within you. God's Holy Spirit is there with you. And this is what makes sexual immorality of any kind, fornication, adultery, pornography, this is what makes it unthinkable as a regular part or any part of a Christian's life. Because God is in us through the Holy Spirit, not just as an influence, not just as a power, not just as, as something, but as God Himself in all of His holiness. And He can be grieved. Oh, how often have I grieved Him? How often have you grieved this dear Spirit? How often have our, have our actions grieved this precious person, the Holy One, dwelling within us for our good, uh, working to draw us more in holiness and Christ-likeness. And yet here we have we, we turn against Him into things that ought not to be let in our lives at all. A fifth reason we must insist on the real personhood of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, in fact, consistently acts as a person. That is, He does the kinds of things only a person can do. For example, verse Corinthians 2, verse 10, we're told that He searches everything, even the deep things of God. That's something only a person can do. You say, well, I have a search engine on my internet. It, it searches. No, no, no. It, it runs a program that a human being with a mind set up. Only a person can search in this way. Revelation 2, verse 7, we find that He speaks Romans 8.26 says He intercedes. That is, He prays for us, in us, and through us. John 14.26, we saw that He teaches us God's Word. We saw earlier in John 16 that He convicts of sin, that He guides, that He speaks, that He hears, that He declares, that He glorifies. And then in John 15.26, when we get there, we'll see Jesus says He bears witness. He, he takes the truth of the Gospel and He makes it known to us in conversion, but He also makes it known through us. And if all of that wasn't enough, look over at Acts 16.6 and 7. Acts 16.6 and 7, the apostles are on the move carrying the Gospel to the world as Jesus commanded them to do. We're told in Acts 16 verse 6, that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, now here we have a very definite personal action on the part of the Holy Spirit. He is forbidding. He is refusing to permit. He is directing them in a very personal way. Now, a tree can get on your way when you're walking through the forest and you bump into it, but the tree can't stand there and forbid you passage. It can't deny you permission. It takes a person to do that. Sixth, the Holy Spirit carries on His ministry toward us, toward us as Christians, as individuals. He does so in a way that is very personal. We've already seen this back in John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, 
He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another helper we've seen means another paraclete, another to stand beside you, another to come along to comfort and help and guide you. So here you are as a Christian in your time of need. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. You need help. And Jesus says, here is someone to help. Here is one to stand beside you as I have been standing beside you to comfort and guide you and direct your life. Remember back last week, uh, we said Jesus is in essence saying, for three years, I've been the one beside you doing all of these things, but now it will be Him. Just as I have led you personally in the past, now He will lead you faithfully into the future. And think about the way Paul carries this forward in the book of Galatians when he talks about the Spirit leading us. Galatians 5.18 But I say, walk by the Spirit, which means trail along and follow Him. Uh, Acts, I mean Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now this is personal. Uh, these words in the original require a personal agent, a someone there to do the leading. And Jesus says, I haven't left you on your own. I'm sending this someone to pick up where I left off. And that someone is the Holy Spirit. He is God present with us to guide us, to direct us, to teach us, to help us, to comfort us, and to lead us to Christ to ensure that we will continue on this path of growth in grace until we reach our promised home with Christ. Who else can do that? Who else can stand in the place of Jesus as Jesus? Unless, of course, He is a person just like Jesus and God just like Jesus. Finally, in the New Testament, we find also that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can be abused in a way that only a person can be abused. Notice first that he can be lied to. Acts 5, verse 3, famous scene uh, where Peter rebukes a man named Ananias for lying, but listen to how he says it. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. If you remember, Ananias and his wife Sapphira had conspired together to give money from the sale of some property that they owned to help the poor. But when they gave the money to the apostles, they lied about it. They pretended uh, that this was the whole sum they had gotten from the sale of the property. And in fact, it was not. The problem isn't that they didn't give all the money. It was theirs to do as they will, uh, Peter says. But it's that they lied so that they would appear to be more generous than they actually were. And so Peter confronts him and later his wife and says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man but to God. By the way, just as an aside, notice the confirmation of the Spirit's deity. To lie to the Holy Spirit is in fact lying to God because the Holy Spirit is indeed the person of God. And it is a very personal action. You don't lie to a footstool. But you lie to a person. You can't lie to the electricity in your house. But you can lie to a person. In this case, oh, what a person. You've lied to the one who is God present among us. If you remember the story, they dropped dead. Second, notice that the Holy Spirit can be slandered. He can be blasphemed. 
Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy means what? Well, it means slander. Lies about someone. Abuse of someone. You're, you're questioning the truthfulness and integrity of this person. Now, you don't question the moral integrity of a shoe because it's an object. It doesn't have moral integrity. But you do and can question the moral integrity of a person. And in this case, it is a heinous sin. And in the particular context, they were attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil himself. And so basically they're slandering the character of the Holy Spirit. Further, we see that the Holy Spirit can be insulted. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 speaks of insulting the Spirit of grace, which is basically the same thing. And then, of course, we've already seen this. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So what am I saying? I'm saying the Holy Spirit must be seen by us who worship God in three persons. He must be seeing Himself as a person, as, as the very person of God present among us, living within us to help us, to direct us, to lead us in sanctification and holiness as we grow up in Christ-likeness. And that's what we, we must understand as, as we relate to Him. We must, we must take care to relate to Him as a person. And this, this means, of course, that we do not ignore Him. We don't brush off His conviction. We don't sweep away His interactions with us. We don't, we don't try to manipulate Him or use Him for our own purposes. We don't treat Him like a power that we possess for our own self-aggrandizement. Instead, we come to Him humbly as God. We, we give Him the same respect that we would give to Christ. We give Him the same reverence we would have, with which we would hold the Father. Now, the old Nicene Creed says this very well. It says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spoke by the prophets. And so we must yield to Him as God, as He does His work to mold us and make us like Christ, because that really is His goal. That's why He is given to point us to Christ and by grace make us more and more like Him. Uh, dear one, is this the way you look at the Holy Spirit? Is this the way you think about Him? Do you think about the Holy Spirit? You understand that's not a charismatic thing to do. The charismatics have scared us off from thinking and talking about the Holy Spirit because they've done so in very poor and unhelpful ways. But, but it's a very Christian thing to think in terms of God the Holy Spirit present with us uh, through the sending of the Father according to the will of the Son. And so do you consider Him? Do you realize that He is a, a, a divine person here to help you and correct you and comfort and guide you daily? And are you, are you yielding to Him so that you're striving to keep in step with Him daily? Are you keeping in step with Him as Scripture commands? Where do you start? Well, you start as ever by coming to Christ by faith. 
You receive Christ through the Gospel as Lord of your life and you yield to Christ as He does His promised work in you through the Holy Spirit, saving you by grace through faith alone and then continuing to shape and renew your life day after day until you finally reach that promised home. Friend, are you seeking to follow Christ by faith alone? It is as we seek to follow Christ by faith alone that we come to know the help and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, here we stand in this place, bound together as one by the Holy Spirit. We haven't had to earn His presence. We haven't had to work up some feeling. We haven't had to do anything but rest by faith in Christ and then recognize, acknowledge His holy activity among us. Holy Spirit, would You make us aware of Your presence and pointing us to Jesus this whole week, deepening our reverence to Him, whispering into our own hearts and minds when we have sinned and we are, in a way, walking away from Christ. Would You turn us? Would You bring us in repentance? Would You make Your presence known? Would You let us uh, interact with You and fellowship with You, which means interacting and fellowshipping with Christ the Son and God the Father and, and, and walking in that love that, 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 that is Yours to share with them and from them to share with us? And would You bring to salvation those who are not Yours, give life where there is death, and bring us home as You've promised. It is in Christ's magnificent name we pray. Amen.